Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. No one said that one back, which is good. I thought I might catch you there. And then I would have to remind you that uh, I am not a mother. So uh, I want to welcome everyone here to Tomball Bible Church this Mother's Day, especially our ladies. This is a day to celebrate everything that it is you guys do uh, to keep the rest of us moving and breathing and fed, and we appreciate it. I uh, especially like Mother's Day because by the grace of God, Many godly women have been a part of my life. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home and had a, a great mom who dearly loved us. Um, then uh, upon getting married, married into another family with some godly women who are here today. And we're excited to spend our time with Leisha's mother and grandma. But uh, many other ladies that I probably owe a phone call to today. Um, one, my friend Greg's mom, Rona, who when I moved up to go to U of H, started looking for apartments, said, just stay here. And for a couple years, she treated me as one of her own. And so I am severely indebted to many women who have cared for me throughout the years. And today we've gathered to celebrate those attributes that make those kinds of women so attractive and so desirable to be around. We're calling this service Celebrating a Mother's Heart. And the reason we're doing is behind all of the stuff that goes on in caring for children and running a household, there's a heart that every mother who loves the Lord and loves her kids possesses. And that's worthy of celebrating. We also want to celebrate the heart of motherhood because we recognize as well that there are many women who possess those attributes, but due to difficult circumstances have been unable to bear children. A lady in my personal life that kind of fits under that category was a woman named Faye Street. Faye was one of three really little, really old ladies at the church I grew up in. It was her and her two sister-in-laws, both of them on their tiptoes, might be five foot tall and soaking wet about 90 pounds. Um, and they were great, wonderful women. Faye was unable to have children. And, uh, you know, she was, I guess, in her mid-70s when she came into our life and we really got to know her. And so, never had kids, but she cherished children. She served teaching Sunday school. She adopted everyone else's kids as her own at the church, treated us as her own grandchildren. And uh, when Leisha and I got married, she would write us cards as we moved off and just cherish the times when we would send pictures to her. So there's many ladies that possess a mother's heart because of circumstance have been unable to have children or have had difficulty having children. And we want to honor that as well. Because the heart of a mother, and we'll see from the passage we're about to look at, is to serve God and to love kids. And so we want to celebrate that this morning. There's something else going in our church. Before we launch into our sermon, I really do want to take some time to celebrate and pray about, which is two of our gentlemen will be leaving in the next week to go to Mozambique to be a part of a mission project drilling water wells to provide fresh, clean water for some communities there in Mozambique. And that's John Qualls and Casey Crumby. Are those guys here this morning? John and Casey? Can I get you to stand up for me? We want to say thank you to you for what you're doing. Those guys will be gone from May 14th until June 3rd, so they get back just in time to get ready for VBS. Um, but we want to pray for them. And I want to ask you, as, you're, as the Spirit moves you while they're gone, to continue to pray for their safety, for their ministry to be productive, and for them to have a real impact for the kingdom while they're there in Mozambique. So let's pray. Let's pray for our mothers and for John and KC as they're going out in the name of Christ on behalf of our church. And then we'll jump in. 
Father God, we thank you for Mother's Day. We thank you that we get an opportunity, Lord, to celebrate all of the women who have been a part of our lives, loving us and caring for us as you do and on behalf of your son. We want to celebrate them today. And Father, we pray that that celebration ultimately would go beyond just honoring the heart of a mother to honoring you. That your son in all things would be exalted and that Jesus would be preeminent in all of our lives and, and that our joy and our satisfaction in life would ultimately come from him. And Father, we want to pray for John and for KC as they go um, to serve you and to serve others as an extension of our ministry. And we want to pray for their safety, Father. We pray that you would protect them as they fly to Mozambique, that, that the conditions on the ground would be favorable for ministry, that you would even now begin preparing the hearts of those that they would interact with. So that the gospel might be communicated both in word as they drill water well, I mean, indeed as they drill water wells, and in word as they proclaim the gospel in relationships with other people. And Father, we pray that they might return with an amazing story of how your spirit has moved that would ignite a passion in all of us to see the gospel move forward. And so we pray today that we would honor you, that we would learn from your word, and that you would move mightily in our midst. In Christ's name, amen. So today we'll spend our time in the book of First Samuel, the first and second chapter, which is the story of a wonderful woman named Hannah who possessed the heart of a mother. She's also a woman who for years and years and years had difficulty conceiving a child. And so when we meet Hannah, she is one of these ladies that we've referred to that has the heart of a mother but had been unable to conceive a child. So we want to jump in, and as we look through the story of Hannah, we're going to focus on kind of the way stories move. Every story that's ever been told has a few characteristics. The first thing that usually happens is we meet some people. We meet some characters, we find out their situation. Following that, some conflict of some sort enters into the story, and that's what kind of drives the whole storyline. From there, the characters that we've met respond in different ways, to the conflict or the trouble or the suffering that enters into their story. And when we listen to their response, when we see how they respond to conflict and trouble, we find out about kind of their philosophy and their priorities. Eventually that leads up to some kind of a resolution. And from that story, from the way the characters respond, we determine truths and lessons from the story. Every story that's ever been told teaches something. There's something about the stories we tell, and that's why we tell them, to communicate a truth or a lesson. And so this story is no different. So as we read through it, we're going to focus on those elements of the story as we can learn from Hannah about what it is to have the heart of a mother. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to meet some characters. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elehu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. If those aren't on your top list for children, if you're having one, you should consider that. Just a thought, ladies. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Paniah. Paniah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever they, the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Penina. 
and to her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and could not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And so that's Hannah. We meet three people. There's Elkanah, who's the husband, and then he's got two wives. Hannah, who is wife number one, whom he dearly loves, but has been unable to bear children. And he has a second wife, Penina, who just seems to be along for the ride, but has been able to have children. And so those are the people we meet. They live in the hill country of Ephraim. They're country folks. There's no fertility clinics around, and Hannah is unable to have children. And that's really where the conflict enters into the story. To be honest, what we don't uncover is really where the source of the conflict is, which is that there is a home that has two wives. In general, that is the source of the conflict. And that's not to be critical of ladies, that's to be critical of anyone who would step outside of the bounds that God has created for the home. When God creates the family, He creates husband and wife. And any time we step out of those boundaries conflict enters in. Whether that's inappropriate activity before the marriage, that brings with it baggage and conflict and, and, and worries of comparison, whether it's an affair, or in this case multiple wives, when we step outside of God's plan, conflict enters into the story every time. And so we have two wives. It's compounded by the fact that, that Elkanah seems to have a preference for Hannah. He seems to love her more, which really irks Penina. But she's able to have children. And so these women are rivals. Hannah, who is dearly loved by the husband. Penina, who gets slighted. And so in order to kind of respond to the sense of being wounded by her husband, she's consistently agitating and instigating Hannah. To the point that, that Hannah is distraught, doesn't want to eat. They go up to the, to the temple to worship what would be the most joyous time of the year, and she can't even stand to be there. She comes to the place that should be safe, the house of the Lord, and instead of being affirmed and comforted, she's misunderstood and criticized. And so when we meet Hannah, we see the conflict and suffering in the story. She's distraught because she cannot have kids. And she's surrounded by a spiteful rival and a husband who just, as much as he loves her, doesn't understand. And what we learn, this is where it shifts gears and we begin to see something about Hannah. When we see people in the story respond to the conflict, respond to the suffering, we begin to learn what's important to them and what their priorities are. So we begin to see... Hannah's response to this suffering she's enduring, to this conflict in the story. And that is where we can really learn from her. So if you want to look in chapter 1, verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli was the priest sitting on a chair at the doorpost of the Lord's temple. 
In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if You will only look upon Your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget Your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all of the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head." I want to pause for a moment there. In Numbers, there's something called the Nazarite vow, where people for a period of time would make a vow before the Lord not to touch anything dead, not to eat any grapes or drink any wine, and they would not shave their head. And it was a symbol of devotion and extreme commitment to the Lord. And her comment is that if you will only give me a son, I will devote him as a Nazarite to serve, be committed to you for his entire life. And so she makes this vow to God. In verse 12, it says, As she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long will you keep getting drunk, get rid of your wine? Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring my soul out to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of great anguish and grief. Hannah's response to life not being anything like she expected or hoped it would be was to pray, was to seek God. Now, if we in modern times run into this scenario, certainly we pray, but we have other things we do too. For those that are here and they've had difficulty conceiving, there are doctors who can help, there are adoption agencies, there are all sorts of options that we can go through if we are having a difficult time having children and we dearly desire to. Hannah didn't have that luxury. She had one option, one option alone, prayer. And the danger that we have is that as we experience struggles in life, whether it's this particular one or any other, is that we go to the other options first. Human options, scientific options, planning, all of those things are good and useful and should be considered. But the whole thing is done bathed in prayer. Every problem we run into in life. Our immediate response tends to be to look towards the human fix first. And if that doesn't work, we begin to pray. And the response of Hannah to conflict, as it should be for any of us, is to pray first. And she seeks the God, God passionately. She prays fervently. She lets it all out. This isn't some sugar-coated prayer that seems happy, cheery, and joyful all the time, that uses all the right words. This is a woman not necessarily even knowing what to say, just pouring the anguish of her heart out before God, trusting that He is big enough to handle it and to address the issue. So she trusts Him dearly. And she prays. And she lets her heart be known before the Lord. She's not concerned with others' view of her. The priest, who who maybe should have been the person there to comfort her, is thinking she's crazy. Maybe she's had a little too much to drink at the feast. I don't know. He looks down on her and rebukes her. And she says, no, no, I'm just distraught and praying and looking to God. And she's a woman of intense faith who has a clear intention, if she were to be given a child, to raise him in the presence of the Lord. 
to raise him in the faith. So we begin to see some resolution to the story. I want us to go to verse 16. Actually, we'll go to verse 17. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. I want you to notice something. Her prayer is yet to be answered. But she's gone to the Lord, and she trusts him, and she's no longer downcast. She is not yet pregnant. She does not have a child. But she is satisfied in the Lord. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I ask the Lord for him. And so that's the resolution to the story. She prays. She trusts God. And eventually, she conceives a son. Verse 24 follows up the rest of the story of what happened with Samuel and Hannah. It says, After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an epoch of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the the boy to Eli. And she said to him, As surely as the Lord, as surely as you live, my Lord, I'm a woman, a woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I will give him to the Lord for his whole life and he will be given over to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. And so she did as she had promised and she gave her son to serve the Lord in the temple and he did, th- did so for his entire life. If you're familiar with the stories of First and Second Samuel, Samuel became a great prophet, anointed kings, was used mightily by God. One of the key reasons he was able to do that is because his mother had devoted him to the Lord. And so what do we learn here? What, what is so amazing about Hannah's heart that it expresses very clearly, as clear as any woman in Scripture, the heart of motherhood? There's a few things that I saw that jumped off the page to me. One is that she loves God above all things. God is central in her life. When she has suffering, when she has struggles, she goes to the Lord. And upon going to Him and her prayer not even being answered yet, she is content. And she is satisfied. In chapter 2, we find Hannah praying to God upon giving her son to the Lord to serve in the temple. And in verses 1 and 2, it says this, Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There was no one holy like the Lord. No one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah's heart and her disposition towards God is that He and He alone is worthy of our praise and adoration and love in that way. She says, there is no one like Him. There is no one who can deliver us. There is no one who is holy like God. There is no rock, no fortress like God. And she loves God more than anything. 
And this is a significant thing in raising children. Because as parents, one of the things that will begin to creep in if we are really trying to do good by our children is that the order of things can get messed up. And instead of God being central, the child will creep up and take preeminence in the home. Ed Young Jr. wrote a book called Kid CEO. And to net out the advice for you, he said, kick your kid out of the corner office. That's where Jesus belongs. And the problem that he points out in that book is that, is that if we allow that to creep up, where even though we love our children, if they become preeminent over and above our commitment to the Lord, we don't do our child a service. It does a few things to the kid. One is that it creates a sense of insatiability. Because we exist to serve them and to give them everything they desire. And what's going to happen is at some point, our resources will run out and they will have to rely on themselves and on the Lord and they will be ill-prepared to do so. The other thing that it can do is that our child can, can take upon them the sense that our entire world and all of our hopes are laid upon them and they can't hold up to the weight. And so when, when my entire world goes around how well my kid does in peewee soccer, that stress is something he can't bear. He can't handle it. And, and kids will have all sorts of psychological and emotional problems if they think that, that their parents' happiness depends upon their performance. So we don't do the child a service. Either they become arrogant and insatiable or they become crushed and in despair. But in either event, it's not good for them. It's not good for us either. As a parent, if we begin to love our child more than we love the Lord and begin to place them in the role that only Christ should be, it creates a sense of unnecessary pride and despair for me as well. Because if my child does well, then it's because I am an exceptional father, my wife is an exceptional mother, and we're doing a great job. But if he doesn't do well, if she doesn't do well, then I'm crushed. If the child doesn't have the success we'd hoped they would, or the, 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 the grade and the report card that we thought they might, or they don't get into the school that we, that we wanted them to go to, and that crushes us, it's an unnecessary despair. It may not be founded in truth. We may have done a really good job. Or, by the grace of God, we might have really good kids even though we botched it. And what happens is we begin to embrace the reality in which God is not the underlying principle of, that we trust in. We trust in our own abilities. And if that doesn't work out, we're either crushed or we're arrogant. But if we take the appropriate role and we love God first, and God is central in our lives and in our homes, then we can respond to good things with joy, because God has blessed us, and to difficulty with peace, because we know God will care for us. And so Hannah loves God first. Jesus is preeminent in our lives. And if we can do that, and our children don't creep up to take over that prominent role in our home, then we will love them well. The second thing that she does that's so important is that she just plain loves her son. She cares for him. She does practical things to bless him. If you look at verses 18 and 19 in chapter 2, we find what I think is just an adorable story. It says, Samuel was ministering, in verse 18, he was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. So picture this. We've got a small child there in the temple and he's dressed just like a little priest. 
That's just cute as can be. Then each year his mother made him a linen robe, a little robe, and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Every year they would pack up, and, and in great anticipation, Hannah would, would, would make this little linen robe for her son as he served in the temple. What an exciting thing for her. She didn't see him all the time, but she dearly loved him. And in practical, loving ways, she expressed care for his child. And that's what moms do. Every year around Mother's Day, a a group does a study about what the average salary of a mom would be if you took all of their job roles. And it's something ridiculous. It's far more than I make. So I'm way in debt to my wife. Maybe someday she'll just wipe out the debt and we'll be good. Uh, But... uh, uh, it's something like 140000 a year if you took an average of all the jobs that moms do. And, I, and so I looked at, at our home and go, okay, what does Leisha do? Well, she's our design coordinator and decorator, master chef, custodial engineer, laundry extraordinaire, COO of the house, accountant, child psychologist, when you start running through all of the jobs that moms do, it's practical, simple ways that moms show care for their kids. And, and, and the great thing about a heart of motherhood is you don't even have to be their kid to start getting that stuff. Just I got Young men, go hang out with your friend's moms. I had a friend in college, Matt, and we were at Lake Charles, Louisiana, and so I didn't have my folks around. And his mom saw how I was doing my laundry. And you know what? She, she said, Skeet, start bringing your stuff over here. Because I would just put everything in a bag and I would just start shaking them out into it and put everything on cold and I'm figuring you're safe. No matter if you mix colors, whatever, just everything on cold, just shake it out and we'll get it done. And then instead of folding it, I was just throwing it back in the bag, dragging it back to my dorm room, stacking it on the spare bed. And when you need something, it's right there. <laughs> it's a good plan, right? And so Miss Eileen found out about it. And she put a stop to it. And so she required me to come over for dinner once a week and bring my laundry. Because she loved caring for boys. She was wired that way. And that's what the heart of motherhood is. It's just to care for kids. To love on them. To do things for them because it brings you joy. And we see that in Hannah. No doubt the time spent making that role was one of great anticipation for her as they would go up for their annual trip to the temple. And so she demonstrated practical care and love. Another way that she demonstrated care for her child is that she ensured he grew up in the presence of the Lord. And she devoted him to God. Chapter 2, verse 21 of 1 Samuel tells that she conceived and, excuse me, says the Lord was gracious to Hannah and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And that is a commitment that godly mothers make for their children. To do everything that they can to place them in the presence of God. Don't drop them off here and leave them. We don't want them that long. Bring them, but take them home. Don't do what she did. But she ensured that they grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now that meant that he was serving at the temple, but I'll guarantee with the other children as well that, that prayer and study, and praising God together was a part of their home. That it was woven into the fabric 
of their lives. And that's the way it should be for us. And so practically, what does that look like? It means we pray for our children. We pray over them, in front of them, and for them. Gentlemen, you got a card on the way in. If you want to express love for your wives this Mother's Day and love for your children, take that and begin to pray for your wife regularly. Pray with your children for their mom regularly. And so there's a little card that gives you some ideas about that. I think that's probably the best Mother's Day present you could give your wife today, gentlemen, is to give her a big hug tonight and begin to pray for her. And if you're not sure where to start, we've given you something to help. If you didn't get that on the way in, I want you to grab one as you head out. We've got them with the welcome team. So, pray for them. We pray over our children frequently. Part of our going to bed routine is praying over them, praying with them. Uh, We go in and kind of tuck them in and make sure everything's good before bedtime or or before we go to bed when they're already sleeping. It's a great time to get to pray for them when they're not squirming. And they're still and sweet. And you can kiss them and they don't do that. Pray for your children at every opportunity, at, at every every moment that you can, and not only for them, but pray with them. Bring them to church. We get part of a regular worship gathering. One of the things that we do that I've got to tell you is very inconvenient, but it's something we've committed to do. It's for our children to see, as soon as they're old enough, what it is to worship the Lord. And so we bring them in, for the, our boys in, that are, that are three and five, for the first part, for the singing, and then we take them to class. I know it's probably a pain to the teachers, it's inconvenient for us, but we've committed that that's kind of a way we're going to do it. You don't have to do it that way. But you have to, as a parent, if you're going to be faithful to God, find ways to show them what worship looks like. That's one of the reasons that in our children's ministry for the elementary age kids, once a month we bring everyone in here. Because we want them to see what it is to worship, what it is to exalt the name of Jesus with passion and desire, knowing that He is preeminent. Your kids need to see that the desire of your heart is to honor and worship Christ. They need to see that. Another way you can do that is to surround them with godly men and women that they can look to. That's one of the reasons life groups, if you're raising kids, is so important. Because you're connecting your children to other moms and dads who dearly love the Lord, who dearly love children, who have the same hopes and dreams for your kids as you do. So life groups, if you're a young family, especially if you're a young family, we would call kind of first-generation Christians, is an important place to plug in. And so she ensured, and godly mothers ensure, that their children are raised in the presence of the Lord. And the third thing I love about Hannah's heart is that it was full. She was content and satisfied in the Lord. In her prayer, she says, my horn has been lifted up, it is full. He would uh, take an animal horn, and it was a way that you could store olive oil. And having plentiful oil was really an indication of prosperity of everything being good, of provision being there. And she says, in the Lord, I'm prosperous. I'm full. I'm content. God gave her other children. And she was happy in her job as a mom. And her role as a mom. That gave her great joy. Our culture is opposed to that, just so you know. Our culture is opposed to the fact that a mom could take great joy in loving and caring for children. And that would be her primary source of contentment in the Lord. If you're a stay-at-home mom here, and we're not saying everyone has to do that, but if you're a stay-at-home mom here, some of your friends that have chosen a different route might sneer at you at times. Oh, you, you just you don't work. That's the comment. 
there's a bit of ridicule under the breath that some women might make towards stay-at-home moms. Our culture says that motherhood is a secondary thing, that careers and all other aspirations are more important. And what we find in the Scriptures is that the role of a wife and mother is to be fulfilling and joyful. Titus 2 says that the woman should have a homeward orientation, that she should be passionate and enjoy her role in that respect. It's a great joy from the Lord. We don't want to be legalistic and say everyone in every circumstance has to be a stay-at-home mom. But what we do say is the Bible does teach that the role of a mom is to be one of great joy and fulfillment. And her heart was full. So that's the heart of Hannah. Why do we celebrate that? We celebrate that kind of heart because it's beautiful before the Lord. Because it's one of trust and contentment and love. And because it looks a whole lot like the heart of Jesus. To place the role of the Father first and love Him. To worship God the Father and serve Him. And to love kids. Jesus constantly reached out to children. And so the heart of a mom looks a whole lot like the heart of Jesus. That's why we're celebrating a mother's heart. 